With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. And people like you and me get caught in the middle of it. Well, what's wrong with them? Baby, I don't know. They need change in the life.
All Eyes on Chicago, August 20th to the 23rd, as Chicago welcomes the first annual Black Wall Street National Conference. Joining us in our efforts in sustaining and increasing black business. To register, visit www.blackwallstreetdistrict.com and listen to Black Wall Street USA, Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com slash cbbn. This ad was sponsored by Chicago's blackbusinessnetwork.com. Join us today and touch the world. Welcome to Black Wall Street USA for Thursday, June 3rd, 2010, with your host, Mr. Ron Carter, Chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago. I'm Sonia Perdue, founder of Chicago's BlackBusinessNetwork.com, and I will be Mr. Carter's co-host for this segment. Black Wall Street USA is on the air every Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time, right here on CBBN on Blog Talk Radio. This is our first broadcast since Summit 12 on May 22nd, and I think I'm speeding up here, and so much is happening, but uh, I think the first thing that we're going to do probably this evening is have Mr. Carter give us a recap of the events of that day. We, as you heard in our national commercial done by Mark Allen, our own uh, editor and publisher of South Street Journal, assistant editor and publisher of South Street Journal, and a member of Black Wall Street Chicago, he recorded that commercial for us. We're preparing for the first Black Wall Street National Convention, August 20th through the 23rd. All eyes on Chicago as we host the first, the very first Black Wall Street National Convention. There are... Uh, what I will call layers of issues affecting black people across America. There are areas of concern that affect all Americans and all nations, but on top of these concerns, we have another layer of concern. Uh, There are issues that affect us this very day, every day, because of our skin color. The task of addressing these layers of concern is an overwhelming task, and I don't even think the term overwhelming can describe what takes place day after day after day. Because after all, after it is all said and done, after we've dealt with the overall economic crisis facing the country, we have to deal with not having access to certain economic opportunities, certain financial opportunity, certain educational opportunities, certain health wealth, housing, opportunity because of skin color. Now, there are those of us and others who are coming along in 2010 and want us to join in the chant that there is no color. I can't see color. We are all the same. Let's make no reference to color. I'm not sure about you, but I see color. And probably until my dying day, I will see color in the person sitting next to me, across from me, down the street from me, across the ocean from me. Because every person, unless you're colorblind or blind, can see the brown of my skin. And there are those of us who every day of our lives make decisions affecting my life based on my skin color or on their skin color. So this evening, as we engage our guests in conversation on the state of black America, We speak from what we know. We speak from what we live. We speak from our experience. We know that the plight of black America is not the same yet that it is for every American. And this evening, that is what we want to address, the differences in our economic, financial health, wealth, housing issues, 
that are part of who we are. And we want to do more than just address the differences uh, or the problems and the issues. We want to talk about the solutions that our individual guests have found to address these concerns. In other words, what is working and what is a working, workable solution to our issues? To simply keep stating the problem over and over and over and over again is sort of like trying to breathe un underwater. Eventually, you will drown. Eventually, it will kill you. But if we learn how to properly navigate the waterway, you may survive long enough to be rescued or come up with a plan of action or jump on a piece of wood and keep on going till you get to the next step. And I believe that is part of what the summits are about. I believe that our topic tonight, tonight, the state of black America, ties into what the summits are about. Let me just take a moment here to update you on what you can expect at the National Convention. On Friday, August the 20th in Chicago, we will host workshops and a reception for all of those who join us locally and our national guests. On Saturday, August 21st, we will be hosting Black Wall Street Chicago's 13th Summit. Although this is the first national, uh, Black Wall Street Chicago has quarterly, every quarter, hosted a summit. Mr. Michael Carter, who is the national president of Black Wall Street, will be joining us from our national headquarters in Oakland. You can visit our national website at www.blackwallstreetdistrict.com for updates and information on the agenda. That's www.blackwallstreetdistrict.com. On Sunday, we will attend worship uh, led by Reverend Michael Carter and host tours to all the Black Wall Street district, districts in Chicago. Monday, there will be a leadership meeting, and that is when Black Wall Street gets back to business. All eyes on Chicago in August, and we want you to join us and be part of all that we do. You're listening to Black Wall Street USA. I'm Sonia Purdue, co-host for this segment, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network.com. Join us today and touch the world. Our caller number is 347-326-9477. Our caller number is 347-326-9477. The chat room is open. Leave your company information and website links in the chat room. Press the number one if you would like to speak to one of our guests or if you have a comment. This evening we are anticipating call-ins from those around the country who are concerned and engaged in the plight of blacks across the country. So this should be quite an interesting show. Our phone lines are full at this time. This is going to be a great roundtable discussion. But first, let's welcome our host, Chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, Ron Carter, to the show. Good evening, Ron. How are you? Hi, Sonia. How are you this evening? I'm on high octane. It's been a long day, Ron, and here we go. We're going another round here. I know it, I know it, and it's uh, it's very um, enlightening where we are, where we're going, and the interest is growing, and with that interest leads us to a responsibility, as you uh, pointed out, and the theme is uh, I, all eyes on Chicago, and with that, uh, with the subject matter, is that it is a, a, a question of race, even to the point that to this day we're still using the term, and we have to use the term, Black Wall Street opposed to just Wall Street, uh, given some real focus on 
the race issue. Uh, if it wasn't for that, we would not have to use that term black. So with that, Black Wall Street is engaging in preparing for our national summit, as you earlier stated. And it is a responsibility as we uh, gear up an agenda that will uh, recognize the the term we use, summit, where we're looking at, at the top and looking from the top our whole scenario of issues regarding sustaining and increasing black businesses. But as we look at sustaining and increasing black businesses, it's a broader picture of how that relates to the social ills that affects the community from uh, crime to education to uh, policies to the whole planning and the what I've been witnessing as we've been doing these uh, programs is that's not a Chicago issue, but the issues that we have here are a reflection to every doggone city in the um, United States. I was definitely surprised we had on our program uh, maybe about a few weeks ago um, from uh, someone from outside of Atlanta, um, Doreen Taylor, as she indicated the uh, the box that black people live in that's being afraid to make that extra step. So as we bring our eyes on Chicago, we get that heavy responsibility as we organize the first national summit and gearing to be a little bit to meaning a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but how we are able and we will be able to uh, construct our agenda to have a true representation where people can leave this summit with not only an agenda that they brought to the table, but how their agenda will be an exclusive uh, to others that be at the summit as well. So the the activities that we're doing are very much uh, broad, but they are tailoring it down to be specific and it all derived from the topic that we have here tonight. So I look forward to this dialogue uh, as we go into it, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be very enlightening at the same time. Absolutely. And I did uh, speak to someone today. They told me that they listened to the show, and I asked them, why don't you call in sometime, and that he has been listening for quite a while, as a matter of fact, Reverend Al Sampson's assistant, and uh, he finds our okay. show quite interesting. Hey, he finds our show quite interesting, and mm-hmm. uh, he finds the topics quite interesting and uh, quite serious. And so we have right. we have a fan in them, and that just right. you know we put out all this energy, Ron, and people just don't even know <laughs> all this energy Mr. Carter puts out. And I can personally say I try to contribute as much as I can. And we don't know. As our summit coordinator, uh, all eyes are going to be on you as well. (laughs) And that's okay. And that's okay. I'm going to keep on pushing forward. It is, it is, uh, it's quite a challenge. It's quite a challenge, but I'm always up for it. I'm ready for the next one. But uh, we don't know who eyes are on us and people are listening. They are definitely listening. Our numbers are increasing. People are listening to what's going on. And so we're, uh, we're very proud of what we're accomplishing. The show is, 
it's by age, it's, it's not that old. Black Wall Street itself is not that old. It's only a three-year project, but it's uh, centuries in the making. Let me put it to you like that. And uh, we're just stepping up, stepping up to the plate and doing what we have to do. Ryan, let's do this. Let's give them an update on Summit 12 that was held on May 22nd in Chicago. Well, as normal, it's intense. Uh, I believe that it has been best um, uh, summarized in Summit um, 11 when we had a uh, young lady that came to the summit and she was expecting workshops, seminars, uh, lectures. But when she got there, she witnessed a whole new agenda. And if you can imagine the United Nations where people come together from different countries that have different agendas and representing their country, their people, and they sit at the table and they discuss what they're going to do to their best interest, to their best interest. And that was basically what happened again at our last summit. Uh, we had a representation from the National Black Contractors Association. We had the um, the commissioner, uh, Tony Paraka, who raised the issue why blacks continue to be uh, part of the uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, we had discussions on the Black Wall Street. Uh, we talked about money A to Z, where uh, Obi Wardloff raised the issue of how we're going to collectively focus on building each individual businesses and those things that we have to do to make that happen not just as a network but as a uh, as an action network to focus on making sure each business make it to the next step uh we had the open dialogue where we had about seven agendas and of those seven agendas uh, where there was not discussed the open dialogue is to kind of sum up what was discussed and what wasn't on our agenda uh, we gave the, uh, the the history of Black Wall Street uh, of Tulsa, Oklahoma, what that was all about, and we talked about the spirit that's directing us uh, today. Uh, and it's not just about Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's about where we are as a uh, community and as a people. So Summit 12 also put a handle on preparing for our national summit. So each summit is more of an accountability of the previous one of what we have done the last three months and how we're proposing to move forward. Um, the, uh, Black Un uh, the Black Contractors United gave a real uh, uh, an action focus. The uh, Mark Carter, uh, they had a very aggressive militant slant of how we should not take no more in the actions that we have to do. So the the summit itself, like the previous uh, 12 or 11 summits, give us a focus of action of how we're going to monitor the progress. And um, one of those progresses of reaching out to the alderman to have some accountability to parity of black contractors in the neighborhood and the question of um, 
there's something like billions of dollars that was geared toward black contractors or quote-unquote minority contractors, and how are we going to have an accountability to, uh, to that issue? So the summit continues to raise issues, but as they raise issues, they are raising us to address some type of actions that we have to come to a peak of uh, of direction in addressing them. So there's still action-orientated um, uh, agenda items that w- took place in Summit 12. And then what happens even after the summit, we continue to have more agenda items. And leading again up to our national summit, we expect more issues to develop, which will define how we're going to have all eyes looking on us uh, on August of this year. So very intense yes. continuously. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, William, uh, Doc Wallace was there, who was candidate for governor. And Correct. the alderman, wasn't Edward Smith there? Ed Smith. Ed Smith was there, uh, made his position clear on having uh, Madison Street to be a uh, Black Wall Street district. Uh, and so even with the last summit, we talked about Stony Island being a Black Wall Street district. We got news today that the Illinois House passed a resolution that Stony Island from 71st Street to 95th Street will be and is now recognized by the Illinois uh, representative as a black Wall Street district. So the concern of what we want to have, comparing it to what we do have, is part of the summit as well. So we want to sustain what we have, and that is declaring these black Wall Street districts. And then how do we actually increase our presence is the other part of the agenda as well. So... uh, we are definitely on a strict timetable as it relates to the Chicago metropolitan area planning, uh, even though we're there looking at the year 2040, is what are we doing today. Uh, and what we have done was submitted four business corridors to the regional planning to make sure that we're on the map when it comes to what Chicago is going to look like for the year 2040. And that's an ongoing concern of inclusion uh, because we feel as though four black corridors, business corridors, being involved in that planning is nowhere a true representation of the parity of black population. Uh, But we have made a start in um, having those concerns to have the black communities a part or the black representation part of the planning for the year 40 as well. So it's uh, continuously on a a roll as we um, focus in on just that, sustaining and increasing black businesses. Now, Ron, Senator Trotter brought the bill for, uh, initiated the bill for 75th Street to be a Black Wall Street district, and that was just last year. Who initiated the bill for Stony Island to become a Black Wall Street district? Uh, Representative Coven, 
we met with him maybe about uh, three months ago, um, brought to him the the purpose and the, the meaning of having Stony Island a black district because sometimes, again, we don't realize what we have. And Stony Island is, has a 60% representation of black businesses. So upon talking to Representative Colvin, he um, gave his commitment, our um, Secretary of Black Wall Street, Angie Williams, uh, led that initiative, and just uh, two days ago it was official that Stony Island will be just that, a Black Wall Street district. So the name itself is sometimes symbolic, but it has a a, a real focus. Uh, I had a surprising phone call today from my uh, brother that is not necessarily politically uh, involved, but he, from the spirit of the moment, he called me out of nowhere and surprised me. He stated that he was on the west side going through the Pilsen area, and as he was driving through the area, he just gave me this call today, and he said, what are we going to do? Because he said there were uh, Hispanic flags all up and down this uh, Pilsen community. So he knew my involvement with Black Wall Street, so he gave me a call. He said, how come we don't have red, black, and greens or our flags on 75th Street or in our community? So he took me by surprise because I didn't know that he was that concerned about that the, the image uh, because he was just a regular stepper going to parties and enjoying his life. But that told me that regardless of him having a just a normal life, there's a subconscious in his head that says that he wants to see a development and a vision of black businesses among his people and his community. And I think that he is a representation of many people that don't speak it, and he just so happens to know his brother that's involved and he said, well, let's have some red, black, and green going up and down 75th Street. Let's have some red, black, and green going down Stony Island. And so what he was getting at is that he needs the symbolic pride in his neighborhoods. So with that in mind, I said, well, yes, I'm going to have to bring that to our board so that people can see the difference and it's not that he was looking at we need to duplicate what the Hispanics are doing, but he was looking at what we need to have as a people in order to help uh, engage ourselves in that black experience. And that black experience is an identification with ourselves. So I'm very good about that. I feel good about that. And that's the, uh, I have a lot to do with us naming these Black Wall Street districts throughout Chicago is that it is the start to identify with the whole community to start making some action and start somewhat sticking our stake in our own neighborhood, as Malcolm X would say, before it's too late. So the the actions of fulfilling the Black Wall Street district is one thing, but the other thing is to actually profess that message of how important it is, as you state that uh, for centuries 
uh, and it's about time that we start doing that, and again, before it is too late. Some areas it may be, but what we do have, we build up on it. So uh, the the importance of the representative and the senator to pass the uh, ordinances and laws in the state of Illinois it has a, a very profound effect in our consciousness. And so in the absence of action is where Black Wall Street step up. But we want to engage those existing organizations, those Chamber of Commerce, such as uh, the Southeast Chamber of Commerce, such as the organizations on Madison Street, to take that lead. We're basically sending that message and again, in the absence of implementation is where we step up. So Black Wall Street, even though we are an organization, we're creating more of a campaign of a movement of what we have to do to sustain and increase our businesses. So symbolic it may be, but that symbolicness have a keen message the same way it does in Pilsen, the Hispanic town, or even the symbolic messages that Chinatown have. It don't have the uh, the red symbol uh, or the red flag in Chinatown, but you see the uh, the facade, the, the decoration, the decor represents a pride of Chinatown. The same way when you go to Greek town in Chicago, you see the, the, the letters and the words that's in Greek to let you know that this is our town and we're proud of it. And so we're looking at doing the same thing. And, again, it's about time we did it. As, as aggressive as they have to be and not being apologetic to anyone in doing so. Absolutely. So, yeah, we got to all of that. That's okay. And I think uh, some of the things that you said are very important. But I think one of the things that stood out for, for me is that it is just the start. Uh, this, is not, this is not the end of it. This is the beginning of it. And uh, you're listening to Black Wall Street USA. I'm Sonia Perdue, co-host for Ron Carter, chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago. Our caller number is 347-326-9477. The chat room is open. Leave your company information and website links in the chat room. Press the number one. If you would like to speak to one of our guests or if you have a comment, our topic this evening is the state of black America. And uh, one of our guests joined us for the first time at a committee meeting this morning, Mr. Marwan Fontaine, editor and publisher, uh, editor and publisher of the Black Magazine, of which I am a reader, carrying around in my bag right now. If you're downtown on State Street in Chicago, you may see this young man selling the black magazine. Stop and purchase one from him. This is our young generation speaking to us, and it's time that we took the time to listen. We're also expecting, among others, Ms. Joyce Gibson. And uh, Ms. Gibson is a real estate broker in Chicago. She is also one of the presidents of the uh, Dearborn Real Estate Board, among other things, a HUD counselor. So we're looking forward to uh, speaking with Ms. Gibson, and we appreciate her taking the time to talk to us. Um, we want her to touch bases on what's going on in the housing market in Chicago and give us an update on the changes in the industry uh, that, we, that will enhance our participation because we all know the game has changed. 
Misty Ann Burley is, will also be joining us. Uh, she is a member of Chicago's Black Business Network.com. And, Deanna, we want to see you back over there more often. And uh, she also uh, is the host of our own blog talk radio show, Politically Involved and Engaged. Uh, I don't believe you've met Mr. Carter, but I'm expecting this to be quite an interesting dialogue. Once again, you're listening to Black Wall Street USA. What we're going to do first is take a very brief break. We appreciate your patience on the line. Then what we're going to do is come back, Ron, and have uh, our guests introduce themselves, tell a little bit about themselves briefly, and then we want to bring them all into a roundtable as we discuss the state of black America. So thank you for being with us this evening. We're going to a short break, and we'll be right back with Black Wall Street USA.
we're back, and you're tuned in to Black Wall Street USA with Mr. Ron Carter, Chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago as our host. I'm Sonia Perdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network.com. Join us today and touch the world. That was tenderly performed by composer, composer pianist Boise Queen. I thought that would relax me a little bit. <laughs> Boise is a member of Chicago's Black Business Network.com. Come over and join us and be a part of all that we do. We look forward to connecting and working with you. We want to take this moment to thank everyone who joined us this past Tuesday for our networking event at the offices of South Street Journal. Uh, we really, really appreciate it was a great networking event. As a matter of fact, I met 20 people I had never met before. And for me, I'm not sure about you, but that is what networking is all about, connecting and reaching out further than your uh, six degrees that you already have. Now, we're going to go to our phone lines. We're going to welcome our first guest, Mr. Wa- Marwan. And you got to correct that for me if I'm doing that wrong, young man. Ron, welcome back to the show. Marwan, hey, welcome hey, hey. to the show. How you doing? How you doing, Marwan? How you doing, Ron? I appreciate the invite. You know, I'm very honored to be a part of such a uh, up-and-coming and progressive movement, grass, grassroots movement, actually. Right, you know, and, right. uh, I really, I'm really honored, actually, to be a part of this. Well, you know, I was uh, first introduced to you uh, by my wife, Linda. Uh, She came home one day, and she said, look at this. I said, yeah. She said, "Uh, uh, you know, this magazine is, is, is just profound. And I looked at it, and it led me to uh, call you, to ask you to use one of your stories and put it in South Street Journal newspaper based on the uh, the content and the story and the layout and the graphics and the, the overall message. Um, I have to, as we looking at the, uh, the subject here tonight, uh, when I was a... Um, uh, a young adult, or not even a young adult, I would say when I was maybe about uh, uh, ooh, 12 or 13 years old, I said to myself that uh, because I remember uh, going down um, 16th Street, I do remember in Chicago where they had uh, uh, signs said uh, for whites only, help wanted whites only. I remember driving or uh, riding on the bus and going through the white neighborhood on a crowded bus, and no one would sit next to me as a kid. Uh, so I thought to myself, uh, I'll be glad when I become a an adult, because when I get to be an adult, uh, all the white racist people would be dead, and we'll have <laughs> a good uh society so i could not wait till i become an adult because all the racist and prejudiced people would be dead about time i get to be an adult so here i am now um i cannot hope that but mainly kind of address those issues head on how does that relate to you being a young man to the point that here you are uh, basically addressing the same issues that uh, uh, I guess I was addressing when I was uh, a kid, and to the point that um, 
how does that make you feel in looking at the the subject of the state of uh, black America? How, how do you assess that? How do you feel about that? Actually, what really got me started into this was when I was five years old, I saw Shaka Zulu and Roots, you know, actually. Like the culture yeah. where I come from, like the South Side and, you know, Roseland and whatnot, there's no white people there. It's just nothing but blacks. I was actually born on the east side, on the 69th around Stony Island, but it still wasn't uh-huh. no white people. And we just watching TV, like the Jeffersons, you like honky. You just like, you know there's racism going on, right? And there's a lot of poverty in the community, you know, lack of jobs and whatnot. But I really right. didn't understand did it like I understand poverty, it Did you know what poverty was at five years old? Yeah, like we was... get secondhand clothes, like we had to get stuff out the garbage can. It's like poverty and, and what I lived back then, like I was at the actual absolute worst. So nothing is worse than that when I was five years old, you know. So well, I'm going to ask you, how old are you now? I'm 28 years old now, you know, so okay. I know exactly what poverty was and how hard it was for people, especially like my mother and father was married and they couldn't really get welfare. So it was extremely, mm-hmm. plus they had 12 kids, so it was really extremely difficult to try to maintain, so poverty, I've been at the brink of that, but as far as what led me to the movement, now, as I grew up and moved to the the hundreds, it was like gangs, like the gangs controlled the entire community, nothing, it was like the, the, like the GDs, they was like the headquarters out there, and I mm-hmm. still drugs, like I used to be on the block at eight years old, seeing people just destroyed. Like, I see women doing all types of things for drugs, and I took an oath, like, I never in my life touch crack. You see what I'm saying? Like, And I'm thinking, like, why is all these dudes, like, getting locked up, getting beat up? Like, the police always raiding them, throwing them in jail, and I never see them again. Like, people getting 60 years, and I'm trying to figure out, like, where is the businesses? Like, what's going on? Like, all what I see age, is just drug dealers. They're figuring this out? Like, what age are you trying to figure this out? Like, really, all my all my years, because I've seen, like, the worst, but, like, around eight years old, I'm, like, on drug blocks watching people. Like, I used to always hang around older people, and I'm just watching exactly what was going on. Like, everybody sold drugs. Everybody was in gangs, but it wasn't too many. Like, all you seen was just gangbangers, drug dealers. You ain't really see no doctors, lawyers, none of that. And I'm trying to figure out where are they, because this all we are. And I'm watching the uh, Cosby show. I'm like, Cosby, he's a doctor. You see what I'm saying? His wife, a lawyer, like, where they living at? I'm putting two and two together. Like, every time I see them on TV, they never live in a black community. They they somewhere else. Then I found out later on in my life, after a lot of other stuff was happening, really, I found out about black flight. You see what I'm saying? How after we was allowed to integrate, a lot of our, the cream of our crop was allowed to leave. You see what I'm saying? They left drugs. They left gangbangers. People that didn't really have the knowledge, they really couldn't leave. You see what I'm saying? So they all left. Well, most of them left. You see what I'm saying? I think that was one of the biggest mistakes. And also the lack of jobs and the uh, lack of opportunities. Like when I went to high school, the, the, it, seemed, it seemed to me, because when I was in the eighth grade in elementary school, they taught us on like a superior level. Like I felt like I was like the most intelligent person on earth. But when I went to high school, it seemed to me that they were shaping us to be criminals. Like you wasn't really learning nothing. And they was What's waiting an for you to like. Give me an example. Is you feel as though they were shaping you as criminals? Like they had like metal detectors. Like the police always arrayed and search your lockers. Like gangs and you saw all types. It's like the whole environment was like crazy. Like it was designing you. And then when I when I actually asked like one of the uh, 
facility people for a job or some advice, they just tell you, you know, ain't no job. You know, look at it. They're not really trying to guide you nowhere. And a lot of my people that was a little older than me, as soon as they turned 16, like, they always seem to got kicked out of school or dropped out to sell drugs or something. Like, why is they drop? Why is they dropping out of school to sell drugs? Why can't they just, just get a job? And when I turned 16 and I couldn't find a job, I understood. Like, maybe it's – and then all I see working is, like, girls. Like, why is just black girls working? Why ain't no boys working? Like, why can't I find – I'm, like, going all over the city looking for a job, and I never could really find one. And since I took, like, an oath when I was eight, like, I never sold drugs, you know, so – that was like a contradiction to myself. Like, I can't go do that because I break my own promise. But mm-hmm. I tried to actually do something so, else. Well, when when it comes to your magazine, the, the black magazine, uh, what enticed you to uh, uh, to publish this uh, magazine? Man, I'm talking about I, I believe that I was set up wrongly me as a black man, but black men in general, unknowingly, you seem to be like a a cattle, like you, you're on a farm, and you're, like, harvested to go to the jails. Like, I know about the uh, prison industry, how they make billions of dollars, but a lot of the prisoners are blacks who dropped out of school. You see what I'm saying? It's like it was a whole systematic plot that I kind of discovered, and I'm kind of angry at that. Like, man, so I'm trying to actually expose these things to people who just really probably don't even know about it so they won't make those mistakes so they could so they won't actually end up like in a county end up in a penitentiary end up dead like a lot of things out here is not really necessary and i see us being led in that direction and i try to do my best to try to actually curb people from that you know and i was i was uh i have a lot of experience being an entrepreneur you know especially when i was about 16 like i couldn't find a job with my mother like, my mother and father was in the Nation of Islam, and they was taught to do for self, to accept your own. And she told me, you know, if you got skills, you know, if you want to actually get a job, you know, make your own job. So I went about, like, making jobs for myself, like, going out there just thinking of something, doing it. And since I wasn't really uh, hindered, I was able to flourish and get a lot of experience doing that sparking. Like, sending letters off, like, writing, uh, landscape. I did a lot of things. So once I got this knowledge... I was able to do the same thing with that as far as enterprising with the magazine and putting it out there because I was, like, shaped, you know, forged or whatever to do that. Mm-hmm. So give me uh, some uh, titles of some of the uh, subjects that you've written about in your magazine. What's some of the uh, titles that you, uh, uh, the headlines or some of the stories in the magazine? Recently we have uh, Is Money Your God? how most people out here seem to have more loyalty and uh, appreciation to dollar bills, to uh, $100 bills than they do to the laws and commandments. Or God, really, like people will do more for money than they'll do for God. And I see that all the time, and I'm trying to actually warn people about that because if you have more authority, I mean more uh, loyalty to money, then the person who provides that money is basically your God. You see what I'm saying? They could decide for you whatever they want because they know you're going to actually bend for that money. And I see a lot of rich entertainers and regular people fall victim to that, you know, the worship of money because the person who provides it is really got all control over you. So we break that that mentality and have like a, a moral compass, 
then that money and that person who has the money have no power over you, really. So I'm mm -hmm. trying to actually get people to think on that level with is money your God. And then we have uh, another article called Black Man Left Behind. That's like a a survey. It's like an explanation of the result of the civil rights movement, how after, you know, black men and women fought for civil rights, for uh, a lot of the laws that have been passed to benefit minorities and women, you know, a lot of them was assassinated for that struggle. They gave up a lot of their institutions for it. You know, they, they believed that corporate America would change and, you know, be fair to them and provide them equal opportunity. And then you fast forward 50 years later, you see the black man is like the least one to benefit from that. And it seemed to be the one who been, who's been destroyed because after the civil rights movement, they passed a lot of uh, policies as far as welfare who provide, who, who mandated that black man, you know, not, not necessarily black men, but that was the one who actually was affected the most. You know, they had to get out the house in order for the women to get, like, money. I think that caused a lot of destruction in the community because the man actually is the law. He lay down the foundation for the family and keeps it in order. And you take that out, you got chaos, you know, a lot right, of when chaos. I look at, right, when I look at uh, myself being a journalist and a writer myself, do you uh, are your stories based on uh, perspectives, or are you looking at uh, the research to uh, to back up, or is it more of a uh, column uh, or a story, or mainly a perspective? Uh, the type of uh, stories that you uh, that you write about. Actually, it's based on research, observation, experience. But definitely everything is historically backed up and documented. I'm not going to put out nothing that's not factual, but from a person who actually is affected by it negatively, they'll be the ones who will feel it the most. Like the prison How population. Does you, uh, you know, what does uh, taking in consideration the, the generation um, that reads your magazine is there a a gap? Is uh, once you hand out the magazine, do you see that there's a certain caliber of people that is more interested than others? Or is Actually, it it's like across the board. Yeah, it's like across the board because everybody seems to appreciate it and honor it. You know, they they like the information from uh, elementary students to high school students to older cats like youth and uh, even older. Like in their 60s, they seem to all have good things to say about it. I really try to actually focus on a universal black audience. That's why I use uh, graphic art and serious information so it can actually appeal to the youth and get them drawn in by seeing the art. And then once they start reading it, if it's something they like and if it's appealing to them, they'll start reading it and they'll get it, you know, God willing. But also, it's older people who appreciate the art, too, you know. So I try to appeal to a wider audience. And it seems to not have a uh, – it's not. it seems to not be a gap in the generations when, they come to, when it comes to reading it, you know. Mm -hmm. So what, how do you uh, look at the uh, your experience of life that contributes to the Black Magazine as well as the subject of – the state of black america uh what 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 is the relationships um to the point of you uh looking at the state of
of Black America. I understand that you did uh, express the your youth and what you experienced of youth, and as it relates to the present issues of uh, uh, is money your God and the black man left behind, do you look at that as the absolute state of black America, or is there some Crosby uh, programs that's a reality? I think uh, economically, the black community is uh, very powerful. It has lots of money, lots of college degrees. It's a lot of success there. I think the problem we have is not really economic. I think the problem is our, how do I say, our moral compass. You know, in the Bible they have certain laws, statutes, and commandments that says, you know, these are God's commandments. But I think those laws, statutes, and commandments actually keeps the people in peace and prosperity and to live long, you know, live in happiness and longevity. And when you violate and go against these principles, these morals, you're going to have destruction, chaos. Like if you, like when they say in a go-to room, treat those, treat others as, as you would like them to be treating you or do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. Like a person could think to themselves, would you want a person to rob you, to, to kill you, to uh, lie on you, to, to sleep with your wife? Like if you don't want people to do this to you, you shouldn't be able to do this. You shouldn't do this to somebody else. And that seemed to be destroyed regardless of the uh, class with black people. And I think that's one of the reasons our community is so chaotic and so destroyed because of our uh, lack of a moral compass or our rejection of it. And I think after we integrated into a white society and adopted a lot of ways, that kind of diminished our moral compass, especially when they started making black exploitation in the 70s. Like, where that come from? I think if we actually started to embrace morals and principles and started to live according to something what other than money. What do you know money, about the black ex- exploitation films I mean, when you weren't even born then? What was going on? Right, I, see, I know what it is, man. It was white Jews. Man, it was crazy, man. They actually promoted homosexuality, pimping, drug dealing, basically what hip-hop is today. They, they put that out in the 70s with the movies, Superfly, uh-huh. Foxy Brown, and all of that. And I think that kind of helped diminish our moral compass and I think if we actually regain some type of uh, standards as a people, as far as not doing to somebody else what you don't want them to do to you, like everywhere I go in the black community today, like it seems like uh, I'm a target, like get that nigga, I'm going to rob that nigga. Like it, it's been so ingrained in our brains that everybody is thinking something dirty about you. They lie on you, cheat on you, uh, pop to rob you, shoot at you, just because, you know. But they, we shouldn't have that thought process to each other. And then it seems to be, like, praised and honored with our people. You know, we, they give money. It seems the women love them. I'm like, we shouldn't honor and praise these types of things because it's just going to encourage the same mentality and our moral compass is going to be gone. Like, we need to get some type of standards and principles in our community. And I think that will solve a lot of, especially when it comes to going to black businesses. Like, I've been to so many black businesses that treated me so dirty. I'm like, don't you want my money? Why would you? treat me bad and expect me to come back. And I think that's the reason a lot of black businesses fall because they they seem to have that same problem too as far as not treating others how they would like to be treated. You know, you should treat somebody with respect and dignity and they're going to spend all their money with you. If you treat them dirty, they're going to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, that's so, what I think is the problem. Right. 
Now, we, uh, I want to bring on our other guests as well, uh, but with that, uh, I see that you are trying to get a feel for your spirituality. You said your parents were part of the Nation of Islam, but mm. I hear you are more adopting the Christianity. Uh, how do you blend the two together, and uh, how much effect does that have on the state of Black America and Christianity. They teach about uh, Jesus, Muhammad. Not, not Muhammad. No, they teach about Jesus, Moses, and like Adam, Abraham, Solomon. Those are the same people that are taught about in the Quran. But the Honorable Elijah Muhammad taught the Bible and the Quran. Say they're both books of God and they both have truth in them. And I look at the Bible as a guide to cause, because a lot of people in the Bible have experienced things that we're going through right now. And we can use them as a an example. You see what I'm saying? So That's are you I'm a outcast about. among your peers, or are you the norm, or are you the outcast? I'm not really among your peers. I don't, among I don't your really generation. have a, I don't really have a category because they seem to not really like outcast me. You know, people seem to gravitate towards me. The ones uh, in the in their teenage years. I think they're the most lost out of all of them, you know. But as far as my actual peers that's around my age, they seem to, uh, I don't know how to say this, look up to me a little bit. I don't know because mm -hmm. I can't really well, explain then, it. If that's the case, then maybe we're not as uh, far as we think that we are. But on the surface, as you indicated earlier about the uh, – the norm of the dropout, the norm of incarceration, uh, the norm of uh, a lack of e economic stability. Uh, where does that uh, lie within the, uh, your generation for the future? I think it's up to my generation to be the forefront of trying to change that especially being aware of the traps. Well, do you there. have any examples of your generation actually doing that, uh, neither their unsung heroes or those that are known? I know a lot of revolutionaries okay. who's considered part of my, my uh, generation, but as far as actually changing the reality of the situation, that's a, that's a task so great that it'll take more than just my generation. It'll take generations younger than me, generations older than me to work together towards that as far as, you know, having that vision towards seeing things change and recognizing the traps and tricks and not allowing those traps and, traps and tricks to continue to exploit us, you know. But we have to work together, all of our generations, really, especially the babies that's growing up. They have to be taught a strong foundation from the cradle. But it's not just okay. one generation that's going to do it. I'd like to uh, bring on Miss uh, Miss uh, Burley, uh, Deanne Burley. Are you are you on with us? Yes, I am. Um, thank How are you, you doing, um, Ron, for inviting me? And I thank you, Sonia. I um, listened, and I think this uh, young man is really um, extraordinary. And my father yeah, would yeah. love you. My father would love you. I would. Um, my dad had been in the uh, newspaper industry from the '30s. And he wrote Elijah Muhammad's Muhammad Speaks. If you look at the forest and the uh, 
message to a black man that was written by my father, Dan Burley. And my dad was the managing editor of Jet Magazine, Amsterdam News in New York, co-owned uh, the uh, New Crusaders, New York Age with uh, S.B. Fuller. And uh, that was a time, a time period passed. And I look at things now, uh, Ron, and I look at what's going on out here in this community, and I am just very sad. I'm sad about Burroughs Cemetery. I'm very, very sad at the fact that um, young people like my brother here has to go through what he's got to go through as a black man uh, to be basically put up for being a slave and pay taxes to be a slave. If we pay taxes for law enforcement to abuse us. I had an argument today uh, with the police in Willowbrook, and I, I, I'm sorry, Willow Springs. In regards to them saying it's okay to use the word nigger, okay. I went. I used to work at the Circuit Court of Cook County as a deputy clerk. I worked at Argonne National Labs, Boeing International, United States Egyptian. I worked in all these corporations in the 70s. So it was very difficult for blacks to be involved in those uh, corporations. I set up the accounting systems. I went into uh, programming. I have a, a law background. I worked at Friedman and Colvin, which was the third largest law firm, and I'm talking um, back in the 70s and 80s. And right now, I'm looking at what's going on in society, and we have leaped backwards. Our community is so full of drugs and hate; it's not even funny. Well, um, what do you uh, contribute that to? What, what, I mean, to the point is, I I don't know if you was on earlier. I I made the statement that when I get of uh, age, when I was a kid when I get of age, that uh, uh, get to be an adult, that the world would be a better place because all the racist and prejudiced people would be dead. And so we'll be living in a, a very good society, I thought, as a child. But as of today, uh, when we look at the state of black America, what do we contribute? Do we contribute this to ourselves? Do we contribute to Racism? Uh, do we contribute to uh, the the every generation of youth have their own uh, way of expression, even if that expression is what I may call uh, 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 disrespect with the pants falling down. It may be accepted that it's a style, and every generation have their own style, and that we're not part of it. But with all of this here, looking at whatever my interpretation is and yours, and 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 and, and Moan and over it all, what does it contribute to that we have these frustrations? Is it is it racism or is it a, is it our own issue or own fault? What do you contribute to? I contributed to three levels of uh, things, and see, this is what. Uh, and some, uh, what we're lacking right now is knowledge. We don't talk to the old people. We have disrespect for our elders in the, our community, and it's been taught and learned because we have that through media. Media today has opened up the doors for us to see negativity and the way that we're supposed to act and react to things as black people. Um, it's not all bad, but a lot of it has been uh, centered around the fact that we are supposed to act a certain way, look a certain way, be a certain way, and we feed into that. The music is like that, like the young man was saying. The rap is like that. 
So then what we do in this generation is to be black, is to be the most negative thing out here, because what has been done is the, the total annihilation of the black family. And that was all developed in, uh, in order to create a slave-based society. We pay the most taxes than any other person out here. The big, the, the most per people, um, the people in this society, the ones that pay the most taxes are African Americans. We're, we're paying for the prison system. I worked in the circuit court. I had a big fight, like I said, in Willow Springs. They said it's okay to use the word nigger. And they said that um, they looked through the state statute to try to prove me that it's okay to use that word. And they told me that it was okay because um, they said the Ku Klux Klan marched in Tinley Park. The uh, Aryan Nation marched in uh, Tinley Park. The Skinheads marched in Tinley Park. So all those things that they were saying negative gave them the right to call people the N-word, and we use it too. So they, they have a total disrespect. My audience is 80%, I said, white. It's been like that for 15 years. My show goes international. I've been on the air for quite a long time, and um, I listen to what people say. And my thing is educating white people to know this ain't going to happen under my watch. Because I'm saying to the people of Willowbrook, I talked to the uh, police chief today. I'm supposed to meet with him. Because I said, if you can do that and the skinheads can walk down there, I'm thinking about having a cracker march. Because if they can do that, why can't we? And I bet you if I went in there and marched and did a cracker march up there, everybody would be going to jail and be a whole lot of arrests. Because, see, I'm, I'm out there like that. Because this so is 2010. But, so you're indicating that the, the state of black America as it relates to where our problems lie, you indicated three. You said uh, media education, and um, you also indicated about music, which I will say that is part of media and education. Is there a third? You said it yeah. was three. What's the third? Uh, the other uh, one is the, the um, so-called justice system. It only relates to them. Every time I bring up a point in regards to um, the justice, the law, um, I, was, I used to have um, a gentleman on from uh, Lisa Madigan's office on my TV show out in Glen Allen. And he came on there and used to do consumer reports. And I got through with that. I'm being honest with you. I don't care if they call me up, say something about it. I don't care. Because, you know, we vote these people in, we need to vote them out. He told me that we pick and choose what's criminal. And I said to him, I said, oh, okay, so if a black man is shot on the street and a white man is shot on the street, the white man is considered criminal, but a black man isn't. And he basically told me, yeah. So when I said that, and I heard that, I was through. I tried to cut their money off at the source. Because, see, I know how things operate. Because, like I told you, my background has been in those areas. I know what they do, and I am not going to tolerate in 2010 to see my kids, somebody else's kids, be out here and be under tyranny when we're supposed to have handled all of that in the 16 building. That's supposed to be yeah. over with. Well, when you are looking at both of you that have um, relationships with the Nation of Islam, and as I recall with the uh, Honorable Elijah Muhammad, he used the, uh, uh, I guess, the teachings of, quote-unquote, the devil, 
the superiority of the black man in order to uh, change a mindset, a mindset uh, of self-identification. Uh, is that, uh, I guess, a two-part to my question, is that something that we need to uh, institute based on superiority in our attitude uh, over others? And is that a form of white racism opposed to is that what's put us in the state that we are? Is it racism or is it a a lack of something that we're not doing? Well, and, what happened? I, I, I guess the thing to say to you, Ron, I have a letter in my possession that my dad had for Eon, and it was from the white press. And it went to him while he was managing editor and associate editor over there at Johnson Publishing Company of Jack and also Evidence. And the letter was from one of the white publications, and in it basically they said, they asked um, that the paper, the, the um, publication, be geared more to what they put out and that black people look and act a certain type of way. So at that particular time, the media controlled what we did. So the power of the media has always been, always been. So right now, you look at what's in the media and how we look and, and per, perceived in the media. We're basically a joke. We're, we're, we talk about Stephen, Stephen Session and all those people. What are we doing right now for our community? We're all hopped up on drugs. Not all of us. There's some component out there that's really trying to work and do something. But again, the folks out there trying to do something can't stay in their own community. So again, like the young brother said, you move out. I moved into the uh, Inglewood. I tried to rehab in Inglewood. I was attacked in Inglewood. I got to a mindset that I didn't want to go to, and I got there because my own people were attacking me. Now, I looked at what was going on, and I could that's very bitter, but then again, I looked at it in a different sense because I still believe that anything that's out here can be changed and redirected. But when you have people who have absolutely no hope, no job, and the only thing they're looking for is a, a already in place invisible prison, and that is their economy. It's to go into prison and make little objects or work on the phone bank or whatever, make somebody else a whole lot of money, then that's the problem that you look at. The justice system is not for us. We don't have justice in this system. We have a system that's for them. And, and, and so how do we, we kind of uh, get a grip on this here, um, and if I can call the state of the black America, somewhat of a madness to the point that uh, 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 Smiley, I can't never get his first name correct, Travis, what's his name? Uh, yeah, Travis, uh, yeah, I know who you're talking Smiley. about. <laughs> yeah, he, he, came, he had this black uh, agenda roundtable with prominent black leaders, and it drew 3,000 people to hear the black agenda. Not They did not come to hear the state of black America. They came to hear the black agenda. But they left without agenda because the term uh, of it was set for more discussion than direction. Um, how do the how do we close that gap?
based on the influence of media and the the internal communications uh, to address a, a real agenda opposed to the discussion. Now, any way that you can, I hope I am getting this correctly, what do you do? What's the solution? The solution is this. It's very simple. We have to start cleaning up our community and the minds of the community. So what you have to do is go block by block. There's old folks there that watch what's going on. we got military men in, in the community. Get them to work to police your own community. Don't ask them for nothing right now. We need to clean up for ourselves. This is our money. Black Wall Street didn't operate like that. You know what? I'm 58 years old, and I'm like one generation or two removed from Black Wall Street, and my family was tied into Black Wall Street. My family owned Cardinal Lake Metal. Cardinal Lake Metals were the churches on 31st Street going on back was owned by my grandmother on my, on my father's side. So the thing is that did we have D for it? Yeah. And it was transferred over to that church? Yeah. But the thing is that, did I get any residuals from that? No. We don't get residuals from nothing. We can't get in our own community to operate. We don't have any really stores we operate. The Arabs and the uh, Koreans have come in. Why? Again, the economically depress us. The economically stress us out of being able to be able to manage and take our, our, our own agenda. So before we can do anything, economically speaking, we have to clean up the community. We need to go in and get uh, the finest young men and women that have gone into uh, schools that understand psychiatry and go in and look at what's going on and do a study to find out why these people are acting like they are to, and come into a situation of cure instead of their cure. And then also we need to, like I said, anybody who is in a block, do a block club, and you see people acting up and acting out, 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 out of place, the block club needs to vote those people out of the community. Just boom, get the right. well, get this stuff uh, and get out. Great. Let me, uh, uh, we're here on a round table. We have um, uh, Mawan Fatin, and we have uh, Ms. Deanne Burry, and I'd like to bring on Ms. Joyce Gibson. How are you doing, Ms. Gibson? Ms. Gibson, are you with us? Yes, I am. How are you this evening? I'm doing well, thank you. Okay, welcome to uh, the uh, Chicago Black Business Network in Black Wall Street, USA. Uh, as you've been hearing, we are addressing the the big question of uh, the state of Black America. Uh, Monson, you are in real estate, correct? Yes, I am in real estate. As we look at the state of Black Chicago, I'm, I'm sorry, of Black America. And given your uh, your background in real estate, and you see the trends, and you're witnessing the trends, and I've got to take in consideration, real estate has had a lot to do with the demographic play on uh, Black America. How would you assess this this big picture and bring it? to a, a focal point um, regarding the, uh, the state of black America? Well, first of all, um, you know, this, it's been a very, very lively conversation, and I'm glad that I was listening tonight. Um, 
um, beneath it all is the land. And, and as, as you know, um, wars have been fought over it. Uh, it determines uh, not just uh, where you live, but how you live. Um, we always talk about in real estate that the most important, three most important things in real estate are location, location, location. So um, you can't get around, you know, wherever the people are um, is is important. If you if you're in a desert, uh, your needs are different than if you live in a valley that is lush, green with a lot of water running around it. And how does that relate to us as as we are as African Americans um, in in uh, in this economy, um, it is it is almost um, at the point right now. We we are constantly with the Dearborn Realtors Board having this conversation um, as the impact of foreclosure, which is disproportionately affecting our community. How does that affect our wealth? The base of our wealth in a black community has been affected not just for um, for the immediate right now but we're talking about for the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, as we see our communities being devalued uh, at the point uh, that we've lost, oh, probably more than, uh, in, across this country, probably more than a trillion dollars in housing values, in land values uh, in this real estate. When you say we lost a, a trillion dollars. In black people okay. lost All right. value. And, and I, you know, just... just uh, uh, looking at one community in our in our city, if you look at Inglewood, which has the highest, uh, only next to uh, Lawndale, the highest number of foreclosures. Uh, four years ago, when we started seeing um, the real trend, really the the trend for foreclosures in our community started uh, long before this bubble burst. It started in our community um, in the 90s. Uh, when we had something that people were calling predatory lending. Uh, our communities are vulnerable. And um, as we uh, b began, when we first started seeing the first tip of it with all of this um, subprime lending, it was geared toward people of color. It was not until it worked its way, you know. How can you substantiate that statement that it was geared toward people of color? Well, it was geared towards, and when I say geared towards people of color, uh, because where we began to see the first real wave of uh, foreclosures and uh, what I call these these uh, suspect mortgages were all in communities of, of black and brown people. And there's a reason for that. It wasn't just because they said, well, let's go after black people. It's a reason. It has to do with that those communities were stable communities. If we look at community, you know, when I used to teach the real estate class, and I would say, you know, real estate is, a, is, an, is an investment. Um, our, our culture deals with real estate and home ownership different than other cultures. Uh, usually minorities deal with it a little different. Brown people deal with the same, some Asians. We don't see it as this big economic engine. It's our home. It's the place where memories are made. It's the place where we get derived joy from burning a mortgage. The average African-American that owns a home will own the home until the mortgage is paid. The African white, the average white person in this economy will probably own 2.3 homes in their lifetime and may never burn a mortgage. Okay? So for us, one of the reasons our communities were ripe for picking is because when you look at communities like, um, like Lawndale, 
you look at Chatham, you, we buy a house, we stay there. I'm sure everybody on this call can can go back to, quote, unquote, the old neighborhood, and a whole lot of the same people are there, and they pass those homes on to their children, the next generation. And so we were a stable community in those communities of homeowners. The population was aging. The population was retiring. And so those people that were the first wave at least when we had hearings in, in, in the uh, downtown and we were in different organizations were rising up about predatory lending, what we were seeing was that the people that had been targeted were those people who were pretty substantially uh, secure in their homes. Their mortgages had been burned. Uh, they were equity rich. And so the first wave came out talking about let's refinance. You know, I always tell people your house is not a piggy bank. So when we started to um, refinance, uh, you know, you can get this money whether you even had a way to pay it back. And we began to see that. And that really started in about 93, 94. By 95, we were seeing a disproportionate number of African Americans and Hispanics who were over the age of 40 losing their homes to foreclosure. The snowball continued because, as I always say to people, you know, there was no real, you know, it's not the the, the uh, whole issue of home ownership and pushing home ownership in minority communities. It was never about that somebody loved African Americans and Hispanics or other people of color so much that they wanted us to have homes. It was about the dollar. When you look at white America that was sitting at almost 70% home ownership, and you go from 70%, we will never have 100% home ownership in this country, but we will probably have somewhere around 92 and 93. The difference between 70 and 92 and 93 is a smaller distance than where African Americans and Hispanics were at 46 and 47. You do the math. So if you're at 47% of, the, of, of black people in this country are homeowners, and if the, if the 100% for us is 85% home ownership, you do the math. The difference between that 45 and 85 is a much greater gain, not for us, but for the people who make the who make the loans and who do the mortgages. And so, of course, well, let me uh, let me ask you this here, as it relates to the the real estate industry on mm -hmm. its impact on communities, as it relates to again the the city of Chicago, um, as well as other cities, I'm for, for sure. They have these incentives that's called the the TIF, the Empowerment Zone, the SSSA area, the uh, uh, the, the Strategic Planning area. All of those are uh, factors that looks at uh, the economic uh, uh, condition of a community, and then we take into consideration. Uh, as you stated, uh, location, location, location in the real estate industry. As um, uh, uh, as Miss um, uh, Burley indicated, she focused on uh, the media, she focused on education, and uh, she focused on uh, the justice system. As uh, uh, Mo I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, uh, Moan focused on the uh, the, the youth. How do we pull this big picture from the youth to the justice to the media to the economic conditioning of city planners that take in consideration the mortgage industry as it would affect the state of black America?
do we get this big picture taken in consideration, as I stated earlier, uh, when we had the Black Agenda form at uh, Chicago State? How do we get this big picture in mind to how we make the the next move, taking all of these uh, social issues as it relates to how much the the real estate industry has put the country as a whole in this state? Well, you know, it, we have to go back to, and it, it really does go back to about being educated um, and having this and having this sense, knowledge, and understanding of what it means to uh, be part of the vaulted gentry and to own land. What that means um, as it relates to uh, the global uh, community. We talked, I think someone uh, mentioned, uh, I think the young man talked about um, how the, uh, with, uh, you know, the drugs and how they decimate our community. And, and nothing ever happens by accident. Mostly all of these things are, are, are planned. Um, you, you know, um, I always say that, you know, we plan um, from day to day. Um, other people plan uh, for 20, 30, 40 years out. Uh, when we're talking about how cities are planned and about communities, uh, the discussion about what's going to happen at 51st and Prairie um, in the year 2040 is already on the table with the city of Chicago. What's going to happen to 51st and Prairie as it relates to us as African Americans within our community, we haven't even begun to have that discussion because we're still, we're, still, we're still struggling with how we get to not, not 2040, but how we get to uh, July the 31st so we can pay a rent on August the 1st. We have do we put that, well, do, uh, does that go back to, uh... Let me just say, it goes back to a lot of things. It goes back to, number one, um, education is very, it is very critical. And we, you know, we have to, you know, people don't wake up overnight and just know, just magically understand about the economy of, of the land and about understanding... Now, are we speaking of education, e e uh, uh, schooling, or are we yeah, speaking of education or the... It's not happening at the, in the school. And unfortunately, it's not happening in the homes. And that's not... It, it's just it's not happening in the homes because the parents don't know. I mean, you, you look at it, the parents don't know. So it's got to be... It really does have to be programmed into the educational system for us. And... and uh, you know, that has got to be the whole issue of even entrepreneurship. You know, it's not discussed in our homes. You know, we raise our children to have a better life than we had. And I always say, you know, we have created, we have, we have helped to contribute to the, um, to the demise of our own economic viable engine. We raise our children to be master degreed. And, but somebody's got to open the grocery store. Somebody's got to be uh, do the, sh the shoes. Somebody has got to uh, have the mom and pop business that looks like us. If, if everybody can't be in corporate America, some of us got. Well, to be Ma, let me ask uh, 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 Mawan. Do you get? Uh, have you witnessed your peers uh, speaking entrepreneurship? Can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Do you, uh, yeah, yeah, when it, yeah. When it comes to selling drugs, that's about it, you know. <laughs> Wait a minute now. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but can I actually? Yeah, yeah. Actually, actually, 
Actually, actually, to be honest with you, my brother and some of his friends opened up a shop, a mechanic shop. So yes, I have seen it. So but it always comes. How did they get to be able to want to open that shop? Was it something that they inherit from their peers, or is something in their gut to do it, or that they inherit it from your parents? What made what uh, drove them to do that? And not just with your brothers, but is there a norm among your generation that is speaking about business, or is it just really an absence, or, again, are you just going to tell me, yes, drugs? As far as, like, the masses, they seem to be interested in selling drugs, probably because of oh the glory gosh. they get the girls. But as far as, like, my brother and his friends, my brother – he always did cars. He always was an entrepreneur anyway. He used to be on the streets and all that. Like, But he still did those types of things. And I think the influence from him having those skills and my other people who actually probably left, you know, the other the other type of lifestyle alone, they probably came to the conclusion that they should open the shop. And it eventually well, happened, but that's like... Let me, let me, what is the probably like percentage less than, of the norm of your... Yeah, pardon? Probably, probably less than 1%. One percent of your generation have an entrepreneurship-driven um, uh, goal set. Is that yeah, what you're saying? I'm, I'm going to tell you why that is. I'm going to tell you why that is, exactly why that is. I had a class called Social Psychology, and they talked about how a community is shaped around the people who actually are older in a community, what they do. Like if you come from a community where you have nothing but business owners and doctors and lawyers, the youth mimic them. But if you come from a community where people just stealing, robbing, selling drugs, the youth will mimic them because they really don't have anybody else to mimic. So it's like it's bad because it's 1%, but I think it's shaped like that, designed that way. Okay, Ms. Gibson, you was getting ready to make a comment? Yeah, I was going to say the young man is absolutely correct when he says that, you know, we mimic what we see. And um, I think it was the young man also that said, you know, uh, to some extent, um, when we talk about integration, integration was the double-edged sword. It was good and it was bad because it helped to, you know, separate but equal was not necessarily all that bad uh, for African Americans in, in, in communities because we saw in our communities, we saw doctors, we saw lawyers, we saw teachers. When integration came, it said you can move past those boundaries. And so what happened is a lot of those the intelligentsia of Black America moved out of inner cities. Moved out. Was Dr. Cities. King all that bad, or what? Well, I don't know that it was. You know, my aunt used to always say that she respected Dr. King. She said, "I think he's a very bright man. I think he means all the the best, but." I don't know that he really thought all this all the way through. Right. Well, I know that I, I kind of over-exaggerate making that statement okay. because I do know that in Dr. King's later years, he was speaking what we're trying to speak now. Right. Uh, we have a, a caller on the line. Uh, caller, are you are you there? Hello? Yes, caller. It's Randall. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi, how you doing? Uh, your name and where you from? Yeah. This is this is Darius Randall here. Darius, Randall. what's he, okay? Uh, are you from? Okay. Uh, Illinois. All right. Uh, what, what's your comment? Well, well, um, like I know you, Ryan, uh, and I know uh, Sandra Purdue. Uh, I was uh, uh, listening 
in in on your show and everything. And thank I you. Was, I was uh, I've uh, called Dan like before. I'm sure you recognize. Oh uh, yeah, right. I remember. The, uh-huh. How are you, Darius? How are you doing this evening, Darius? I'm doing great, Sanja, uh, and I'm glad to be uh, on the line tonight. Well, speaking to uh, the uh, state of black America and uh, where we're going here, uh, Dr. King um, wrote a book called Where Do We Go From Here? And uh, he also wrote a book uh, called uh, Why Wait? Um, I believe that the black um, like black institutions, black re- religious institutions, uh, and all of our uh, faith traditions lean on the word patience and lean on the word waiting. Uh, when you look at the I'm numbers, sorry, I didn't hear the other words you said. You said patience lean on the word patience and waiting, and okay. it uh, speaks a lot in scripture that you know wait on the Lord, He shall renew your strength. And uh, we 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 like to like exaggerate that word, and uh, I co- confirmed it in Tom Burrell's new book, Brainwash, when he spoke on the fact that we 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 have this concept of um, having bread to be led. So therefore, you know, we are we we are getting leadership, but is it but is it clear leadership? You know, is it is it taking us to where we need to be, or are we still stuck at the bottom? Because when you look at the numbers in America, African Americans, we're behind in just about every number you can imagine. You know, uh, like when you look at homicides, African Americans are leading in homicides with uh, males included. So we're killing each other. We're the most unhealthy. Uh, we're the most uneducated. If we go off of these uh, statistics, sometimes we go off of stereotypes, which can be very biased and prejudiced. And and I admit the st- statistics can too, but at the same time, how do we speak to these matters or these issues? And uh, well, there was a uh, you use the term. Yeah, you use the term uh, brainwash. Uh, if I can get that, does is that institutional brainwash or is that uh, controlled brainwash today? And if others can uh, elaborate on that as well. Well, you know, I I believe it's a controlled brainwash theory that's out there because a lot of these things that we uh, when you say control, controlled by who? Controlled by the uh, white oppressors. And you know the uh, ones who are in power, they have control over major. Well, when I when you when you say the, uh, I guess being a, a journalist, I guess I want to. Could you give an example of a individual or organization that you would say is the white oppressor? Well, I believe the entire uh, um, from the from the uh, cable news media. Entities like Fox News and your. Uh, Do you think that they sit in a in a uh, in a in a, a boardroom and decide that this is how we're going to control and brainwash Black America? Oh, indeed. I believe they sit down and they choose because even when you look at local local TV and ABC Seven, why is it that every top three stories 
has always something to do with black man shot on West Side Chicago, uh, black man robbed, black woman raped. We're 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 at the center of all the attention on the media and the news reports it. But there's there's good stories going on and and like Black America, sure it is, you know. And those stories are really reported. And when you got a person sitting at home just going off the news media, going off the news uh, uh, stories, they're gonna sit at home and come with the concept that that blacks we're behind and nothing. And I'm hearing my my, my uh, like brother talking about how uh, the, like the brother sell drugs. Okay, they look at TV, they look at the news of you know themselves being uh, being the uh, like uh, degraded and the news anchor speaking. Down on black folk, they're saying, okay, what is it is to hope for, you know, and not just looking at President Obama's success as president, but at the same time, I'm on the block, I need a job, I need education speaking in the, uh, like the voice of the ones who are poor. Actually, you can look outside and see drug dealing and killing. You ain't necessarily got to turn on the news to see that, you know. Yeah, I, well, we have, a, um, we have a we have a in our chat room. We have one individual, uh, Ebon Storm, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correct. He makes the re- reply that he do not believe that there are some people sitting in the boardroom and uh, deciding how they're going to control black folks. He indicates that it is simply a matter of money, and the motto is if it breeds. It leads, simple as that, follow the money. Uh, I would like to, uh, uh, I have a little opinion about that, meaning that I think some of you may uh, recall Ed Bedodiak uh, during the uh, Washington, Hell Washington years. And he was on WBLN, and he made the statement that uh, maybe about uh, two years ago, where well, he's in jail now, but he made the uh, statement that, the council wars between the twenty was it twenty one and the twenty nine it wasn't about race it was about power it was about money and that if uh when the black community realized it wasn't about race, the better the black community will be. I have somewhat kind of uh disagree with that to the point that if it was about money but you use race in order to gain that power, then you subconsciously use race in order to uh, take the position that Ed Vidodiak in the 29 took. Um, but with that, would the others, would you all agree that there is a group that's sitting around in the boardroom deciding on how they're going to control, even to the point if it relates to the, the mortgage industry? Was there a group uh, sitting in the boardroom and indicated that we're going to concentrate on this uh, mortgage uh, problem in the Inglewood or the Roseland community? Well, of course there were people sitting around in the I think this. boardroom Hello? making a decision uh, okay, about Gibson how they were and going to make mortgages, uh, how they were going to lend money, uh, and looking at it uh, as to – where they could make the most money. That's like with anything. I mean, this is, you know, it's like we don't just like it. This is business. Uh, and so uh, when we say were they targeting, sure they were targeting uh, economically disadvantaged communities that were people of color because they could make the most money there. 
that's where they could have the most growth in the mortgage industry. So on some level, I mean, were they saying, let's just get black people? They were saying, let's get where we, let's get the market that has the most growth potential, and it happened to be us in most in in. Well, then is the our uh, caller on the other end is I mean not the caller our uh, in the chat room uh, E. Bonstrom, Then is he correct? It's not about race. It's this. about money. And it just so happens to be black that is targeting following the money. Well, let me say actually. Can I, I can I answer some? Can I say some? I believe yeah, okay. that self-preservation is the first desire of every race, and it's in the it's in the interest of every race of people to to try to actually gain power and keep it amongst their own people. I think instead of us focusing on what white people was doing in their boardrooms, we should be having our boardrooms and we should have our own. 2040 plan exactly. determined based on our, you know, best interest, gaining power for ourselves because it's a, it's really crazy to think that it's not about race when you, every time you have a white mayor, you know, the white community does better. When you have a black mayor, it seems to be towards the black. So everybody thinks about race, but we should think about our own agenda and get our little, you know, small little room and think, plan for the next 50 years and make it happen and forget about what they're talking about. And even, and do even we? Uh, uh, well, well, Sonia, I think you was in the uh, mortgage business. Do you, uh, even again, not just focusing on the mortgage business, but do you think that there's a group of uh, quote unquote white folks sitting in the boardroom and planning how they're going to target the uh, the black community to make a money, and it just so happens they're black and brown? Well, Ron, you know, I think people have full-time jobs and very well-paid jobs to watch us. And uh, they got 80 hours a day. They got unlimited income to do it. Uh, they get that check every two weeks, and their job is specifically to watch and plan, and they get paid well to do it. I do want to go back to Joyce, though, and that's the reality of it, and listen to our show, and that's the reality of it. I want to go back to something Joyce said about the real estate age, uh, real estate industry in the 90s. One other thing, Joyce, uh, yes, they are targeted. Yes, it is about the money. That was the biggest growth market uh, going on. And so, yes, of course you target that market, absolutely. But another thing, Joyce, if you will remember in the 90s, in Chicago, but not only in Chicago, because these things are always duplicated across the country, as the Ashburn area began to change, as the white flight began in different areas, you have to fund that white flight. So as a few blacks start moving into Ashburn and they want to move out, then you have to get people to come in there and give them their equity. During the 90s, uh, blacks start moving into the Ashburn area. They start changing the mortgage uh, terms in order for them to be able to purchase in that area so that the whites in that area, and Ashburn is a large area, to, to get their equity well, I'm glad you, their I'm wealth. Glad, I'm glad and, you brought that move. up because, because and what, move what they had in, in Ashburn. That, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. What they had and, in Ashburn wasn't, uh, when you said that, well, the, what one of the things, and one of the things that the Dearborn Realtors Board fought very hard against was something called guaranteed equity. And guaranteed equity was an insurance policy that was sold in the Ashburn area to white yes, families to yes, guarantee that if blacks moved in or anybody moved in, 
that your property values. Now that does whole show all by itself because hey, my phone's gonna die. That with uh, that there is a relationship or a correlation between property values and race, and that's one of those issues that not only does white America have, we have. We as black people, and that boils, <laughs> takes me back to uh, what I always say is with with us as African Americans. I believe that we are still recovering slaves. Hey, can, we, I, can I say we something? Are, we are recovering slaves. We can still I say have that slave phone? mentality. Yes, uh, uh, okay, yeah, uh, I see your phone. Go ahead, uh, uh, Marlon. Yeah, I think uh, the biggest issue concerning the state of black America is the fact that our hearts and minds are rotten. You know, we ain't, we're no good. Until we clean the hearts and minds of our people up, we're going to continuously have these problems. We're going to continuously have to think about the next man going to rob you and kill you. You know, if our hearts and minds change and our attitudes change and our behaviors change, we have more time and more security focusing on these other issues like the economy and safety. You see what I'm saying? But like Elijah Muhammad did, he took Malcolm X, an ex-con, a criminal, and changed his heart and mind, and he became, you know, one of your heroes, Ron. You know, he, he changed the hearts and minds of hundreds of thousands, I think two million people. And I think that's what we need to do now, focusing on changing our hearts, minds, and attitudes towards each other. If we don't, mm-hmm. we're going to continue well, having, if, if having these problems. Even with what you're stating, uh, Moran, you're indicating what we have to do. But I'm, Media. I, I'm, I'm really radio. looking at, right, but I'm really looking at even from the mortgage industry to the media, that uh, as we attempt to do what you're stating that we should do, that there are um, powers to be, so to speak, that is uh, planning uh, and have the power to influence or control our behavior. What's the catch-22? How that's do we why, do this? That's why Black Magazine exists. That's why, you know, Black Wall Street exists. We have to get these things out there to counter a lot of that brainwashing because if we don't, they're going to have a monopoly over our minds and everything they're planning is going to be successful until we change the hearts and minds of our people. They're going to plan it anyway. They're going to continue to be doing that. We need to plan. And the changing of hearts and minds directly to what I... Our hearts and minds are rotten. Is that we're rotten because... Again, that's the that's the fact. That's the problem right there. Okay. Our hearts and minds are no good. Right. Uh, there is, we have come from a culture of slavery. We are still not recovered. And that right. I ain't never been in slavery. All of that other. My people, my people ain't been in no slavery. Right. Okay. Stop thinking yeah. that. That right. mentality okay. right there is part of the problem too. Thinking we slaves. What well, a history. What well, a history. If but if you, but if you, but if we would go with what we have today and realize that we have an African American president in the White House, uh, we have to also look at the fact that we don't have an agenda on the table for us. He's an African-American president. He, uh, we have Black Wall Street. But That's an agenda. Was that in the state of the black, uh, I mean, like, was that? You got to support that. You got to support it. I mean, like, listen, though, like, like was that in the state of, uh, like, of the, like, doing address this past year when he spoke in Washington, D.C., did he speak on the fact that there's like so many African Americans in prison, there's so many African Americans who are still without decent loans in America, and still, still, we are still like oppressed and still like beneath. And with this brainwashing concept, we have to recognize and acknowledge that, that we have been brainwashed. We have to use our mind and think for ourselves. 
and you know, like we can't go along with the brainwashing program, then we got to stop looking to other races to to do for us and do for ourselves. We can well, invest in our banks. We can uh, like, like invest money and keep it in our communities. But mm-hmm. but but at the same time, we can't focus on just trying. Everybody trying to be mayor. Everybody trying to be aldermen. It would like, mm-hmm. like we need some of these NBA players who are from the uh like sh- Chicago to invest. Back in the community, like Magic Johnson, you know, uh, these three entrepreneurs, that's what we need to do. Well, I tell you what, I, I, I mean, again, the, the responsibility of the conversation is more than the discussion but the implementation. And I have to, you know, as we end our show, I have to say that, you know, we have just a few more minutes left. Uh, if I can get a, a quick roundup on what is that next step uh very briefly from each one of you what is our next step and i say what is that next step based on next week and also based on as uh, moron indicated that maybe if black wall street is that focus um what organization that we're going to put the next step on to actually be implemented, uh, if it's your own individual organization that you're a member of, or if it's an agenda item that we're going to put on the agenda Black Wall Street, can each one of you give me that next action step that will take place, that can take place this coming week? Well, if you, what if you would first attack uh, the business market like you guys are doing, attack the banks, and make sure that they're in your agenda. Attack the education, you know. Attack the criminal justice system. Can't forget about. Uh, <laughs> there is you giving me a laundry list. <laughs> yeah. Give and me, uh, give me two agenda items that we need to address. Uh, neither you will be uh, presenting it to a particular organization, or is an agenda item for Black Wall Street. Uh, let me have two from you. Criminal justice and education. <laughs> okay, Miss um, uh, Gibson. Uh, I'm going to narrow mine to one, and that is um, uh, in, in terms of uh, ownership. I think that we need to be very, very diligent about uh, investing in our own communities. And now, you are a member of the uh, Dearborn Real Estate uh, yes. Board, yes. correct? That's correct. Okay, matter of fact, you're the president of the. Pardon? Co-president of the organization. The co-president. How would you, end, uh, how would you, or is that something that the Dearborn Real Estate is already focused on based well, on ownership? You know, that's one of the things that we're already focusing on, and we've been doing that for several years, and that is uh, to uh, try to work with uh, African-American groups as well as individuals and with uh, education through home buyer training, education through investor training, uh, to buy and invest in our own community, uh, all of these properties that are that are being gobbled up by somebody else and and being held, mm-hmm. it makes no sense for us to have all this wealth that we're losing. Okay, uh, uh, Deanna, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Okay, uh, what is the two action steps that which you will state for next week? Neither from uh, your own individual organization that you're associated with or what you would propose for Black Wall Street to put on this agenda? 
Well, I'm working on the uh, law um, aspect. I'm trying to, uh, I have a number of attorneys in and outside the United States. And what I'm trying to do right now is work on components in regards to racial profiling, education of the police department, that we are people too, and trying to do something in regards to the uh, justice system in a whole. And that's what I okay. do through my broadcast. Right. Um, Mawan um, and you? I think his phone his died phone out went, on us. His phone went dead, Ron. Right. Uh, well, uh, Sonia, don't beat me up. We are getting close to the end of our show. It's definitely been a lively one. Um, we do have some very uh, – I have definitely gained a sense of more commitment from our discussion, and naturally it adds more to the agenda. And as it do so – we will look at uh, bringing some of these points to the agenda of Black Wall Street, specifically, again, as it relates to sustaining and increasing black business. But the ownership, Ms. Gibson, I believe that we will definitely want to see the uh, Dearborn Real Estate Board to be a part of the Black Wall Street as it relates to promoting ownership in uh, business uh, development. So I definitely will be talking to you on how we can uh, coordinate that effort. And, uh, Sonia, let me drove it on to you based on uh, where we at in the show and getting ready to close out in this lively uh, conversation we're having here. Great, Ron. We want to thank everyone for being with us this evening. And we're just, this is only part one. Uh, we're going to continue this dialogue, but this is what I want to do. And I'm surprised Ron gave me five minutes because, you know, here you can go down to like, 30 seconds, but I'm going to give uh, the caller from area code 510 a couple of my minutes. Caller, you're on the air. Do you have a comment? you got about two minutes. Welcome. How are you doing? I was listening to the show. I was pleased to hear that you guys are talking about this. This is something that we need to do a lot more of. Uh, my name is Evan Storm. I'm in your chat room. I'm calling from area code 510, California. Uh, okay. What part of California? Northern California, near Hayward, San Francisco, Oakland. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like one of the things that I see a lot of and I feel like we are falling down on is our children. The bottom line is if we cannot get our children back, nothing else we do will matter. We must take back our children. We must take them from the dope man. We must take them from the criminals. We must take them from the gangs. And that means that we must give our kids back the resources that I had and probably most of you had when we were growing up. We had after-school programs. We had teachers who were willing to be dedicated to teaching our students. We had parents who went to schools and didn't allow our students to get kicked out of class because there was a problem in the school because odds are it wasn't just our kids. It was everybody's kids that was a problem. But our kids were the ones that got put out of school. My mother didn't allow that. She'd go up there and she'd turn it out. And I think that that's what's wrong with our kids now. They are not getting the education they need. The system that we have that's built up is basically saying all I have to do is stop the children and I don't have to worry about anything else. They build prisons right. on our children. From the time they reach a third grade, those that can't read, that's how many prisons they build. They already predetermine where our kids are going to end up before they even decide whether they have a chance to succeed. We must stop that. Mm -hmm. right. So are you going back to the boardroom when you talk about the education? Well, I've been in the boardroom already, been there, done that. I've been a teacher, I've been an administrator, I've been a college professor, I've been a high school teacher. I've, <laughs> you name a place, I've been at all of them trying to get our kids 
out of the, uh, out of a bad system into. No, a when I was when I was referring to the boardroom, that there is a group that sits in the boardroom to program and control the uh, the status of our children today. I challenge every media. I work in the media now, and I challenge pretty much every system of information distribution because I know that ultimately that's where the power lies. He who distribu distributes the information controls what you see and hear and ultimately all that you do. So if you control that, and they do, that's how they make the difference. So I work here on BTR. I work on a bunch of other places. Uh, I work as an advocate for autism because my son is autistic. I'm autistic. I believe that if you want to change it, you're going to have to know what's happening, and most of us are simply too bedazzled by uh, American Idol, uh, what, kind of shoes we car what kind of shoes we're wearing, what kind of car we're driving, that we are simply not aware of what's being done right underneath our feet. And I just want to say one thing, Ron, that what this young man that's called in, He's 100% right, because William Randolph Hearst uh, and all of them controlled the media, and they put out what they wanted in the media, and then we became whatever the media wanted us to be. So today, we look around, and we see what's happening, drug dealers. It's, a, it's appropriate to be a drug dealer. It's appropriate to uh, disrespect your parents. It's appropriate to do everything that is wrong instead of doing the right thing in your community. And that's one of the issues that we have. And if we all work together here, then there will be change. But to talk and do absolutely nothing, idle minds are out there. They need to be uh, educated. I think that that's a good closing, uh, Sonia, based on uh, uh, that, that No, that's Deanne. That's me, Deanne Broly. I said that. Okay. Because, uh, okay. Yeah, because again, it needs to be addressed. It needs to be taken uh, to a measure. And I want to say one other thing real quick. You think you own property. I was in the mortgage industry for 10 years. I was director Ms. of a mortgage Ms. company. Ms. I, sure, I, know, I know your time is up, but you don't own anything. Trust me on that. Okay, Sonia. Thank, thank you. We took it down to the minute again, but it was all worth it. <laughs> And Dan okay. Burley, that was a great closeout for us. Uh, area code 510, that's uh, uh, Abastorm. You have a show on here, Abastorm? Uh, I have a show called Afterthoughts. I work with Estenice Newton. I show it pretty much all over BTR. I put a link in there. You can see where I, sh I work BTR. I'll post it up again. I'm pretty much anywhere and everywhere where there's somebody talking about something that's worth hearing. So if you want to talk Thank about you. something worth knowing about, I'm there for you. Thank you so much. Ms. Gibson, I want you to come over and join me at Chicago's Black Business Network com, and I also like to see uh, you and Ms. Burley at our meetings on Thursday evenings over here at the South Street Journal, 449 East 35th Street. All eyes on Chicago around August 20th to 23rd. Great show. we got to do it again. We'll be back next Thursday, everyone, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time, right here on blogtalkradio.com slash CBBN. Thank everyone for being with us this evening. Ron, talk to you later. Have a great evening. Uh, good night, everyone, and thank you again. Good night. Thank you. Thank you so much. So much. Good night. It's a people problem. That's you people. and me. It's so easy. But we could solve this confusion if we tried instead of shooting. Plus, there's no excuse when we have mouths that could use them for apologizing and acknowledging fault instead of falsely accusing, making threats, shouting, and verbally abusing. You see, we could blame race because it's easy and it's legal, but the one common denominator, people, 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.